here we are again, Mick. It's another Sunday night has come around. Another month has passed. And, and of course, you've been away in Ukraine, as well as getting a bit of a holiday, I see, by your suntan. No, it's been uh, the Easter recess, so the Senate hasn't been sitting for the last couple of weeks. But, of course, we are back in on uh, Monday, and there's a, a long legislative agenda there that has to be completed. And, of course, a lot of issues to do with public services and so on uh, that have got to be tackled. But, of course, it's interesting over Easter because the first week of Easter when I was there was, of course, the Roman, I suppose, the European uh, Easter, which was, I think, on the 6th of April. And, of course, then uh, I went on holiday to Cyprus, first holiday I've been on for many, many uh, uh, years. Uh, and, uh, of course, it coincided with the Orthodox Easter. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, uh, you know, of course, we do have these two dates and we do have these very, very big traditions. And certainly in Cyprus, the Orthodox Easter under the sort of Byzantine uh, churches uh, was on the 16th. And, of course, most of the areas were shut then, both from the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. So a very, very big occasion, bigger than Christmas. This was in Cyprus, and of course it's under the uh, the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, well, of course it's familiar to me because because I was brought up uh, as part of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, um, which followed the same traditions and the same calendar. Uh, and of course it's the calendar which means that Christmas in the Orthodox calendar is on the 6th uh, or 7th of January. Uh, and of course the Easter dates are different as well. You know, and Often we sometimes forget that uh, there are these two traditions calendars that operate uh, side by side in different parts of the world uh, as well as things like the Chinese calendar and so on. Well presumably the orthodox calendar affects some people in Russia then as well I guess. Well of course it does because uh, the Russian church is uh, the Russian patriarchy which is of course very controversial in Ukraine at this moment in time uh, operates the same calendar as indeed of course does do do the other orthodox churches the Ukrainian uh, autocephalous or the independent Ukrainian orthodox church and of course the other churches around the Middle East as well which are you know I suppose some would call the uh, the original Christian churches. Yes, uh, well, we, we lose track. Of, in the West, we lose track of this entirely. I mean, obviously, for your upbringing, you're much more aware of it. But interesting that it also affected your holiday. Uh, it, well, it, well, it did. Uh, it affected it insofar as it was nice and peaceful because uh, all the <laughs> shops were shut and uh, uh, there wasn't much to do but to basically sit and read and do a bit of catching up with uh, uh, some past reading and past work that I needed to do. So that was very pleasant, apart from the fact, of course, that whilst it was raining here, it was sunny in Cyprus. And, of course, I came back to Cardiff Airport where it was very cold. Uh, but, of course, the weather here has started to improve as well. So maybe spring is on the way, summer is on the way, and hopefully things will begin to get a bit better and certainly uh i hope so in uh, ukraine over the coming uh, months yes well of course uh, now we're heading up to what people have been anticipating for months i suppose as a spring offensive on one or both sides I was in, only went as far as Lviv, which is one of the major cities, but in western Ukraine. And we're delivering uh, supplies and vehicles for frontline defenders, really. Things that have been donated uh, by people in South Wales. This was being done on behalf of all the political parties in the Senate. So it was a cross-party event on behalf of the Welsh Parliament members. Uh, so we delivered a vehicle, we delivered medical supplies uh, uh, and other equipment. Uh, so, that, so that was important. But there was a sort of strange 
due normality uh, in the area because obviously everyone is expecting now this counter-offensive to take place. I mean, people have seen now on the television, obviously, the numbers of Ukrainian soldiers that are being trained in Britain and in other parts of Europe. I noticed myself the considerable convoys of supplies that were heading into the country. Uh, I noticed, in fact, when I was leaving, leaving from Sheshov uh, in Poland, which is not far from the Ukrainian border, of course, uh, there is going to be, I think, uh, a major uh, offensive in the next uh, couple of months, precisely when only the a very few people, I suppose, in Ukrainian government know, uh, but people are anticipating it because nearly everybody in Ukraine has family involved in one way or another. Uh, I was talking to some Ukrainians last night that have made their home now in Wales during the course of the war. And of course, some of them have family that are serving. Uh, I have family that are serving on the front line, so uh, I've taken the opportunity to stay in contact with them before... I suppose really before hell hell lets loose because you know you talk about a counteroffensive in a, a sort of fairly you know uh, banal way but what we're talking about hundreds of thousands of soldiers engaging in major conflict tank battles air battles and so on and the whole objective being to push the Russian troops back and hopefully out of Ukraine completely and then perhaps at that stage uh, be possible to uh, to look at long-term peace in Ukraine Yes, well, of course, as you've said before, the, the front line is hundreds and hundreds of miles long, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's hard for us here, with the scales that we're used to here, to imagine that, because that's like twice as far as here to London, is a front line. It's just like incredible. It's about a thousand miles, you know, 1500 kilometres, which, uh, you know, is unworkable it's almost difficult to sort of comprehend the actual distances involved ukraine is uh, the biggest or one of the biggest countries in europe and so when i'm in Lviv in western ukraine and it was the first time i've been there and i've been there quite a number of times this year uh, that there were no air raid warnings it's clear everything is now beginning to be focused on the areas around zaporizhia where there is the big nuclear plant uh, around Crimea and of course satellite photographs show the scale of the trenches that are being dug right across Ukraine 1500 kilometers a thousand miles uh, which means that the counteroffensive can take place uh, over an enormous area uh, either or, or very focused area so no one really is quite sure precisely how it is going to happen no doubt there are very well developed plans and of course some of those plans were apparently were leaked uh, in America uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, but uh, no one is certain when the counteroffensive is going to take place. It may be some weeks yet. Will they have enough aircraft and tanks and things like that by then? Well, you know, you can only go by the sort of reports that appear in the media. Certainly more MiG jets, uh, the old Soviet-style jets. Now, these are pretty old things, um, have been transferred from Poland and Slovakia to Ukrainian pilots. So clearly there are more of those types of jets. Whether Ukraine will have the F-16s or the other sort of more modern jets that they've been asking for and saying they need is, uh, uh, is questionable at the moment. No one really knows. We do know that Ukrainian pilots are being trained for that. So that is happening. 
The other thing, of course, of part of this is Ukraine has been asking for an upping of the game in terms of the provision of air defences, particularly the Patriot missile systems, which can uh, can basically target incoming uh, attacks from 150 kilometres away. So they're quite important. Now, we know some of them are in Ukraine now. Question is, um, how many? You know, when you talk about a country of that size, you know, even if you've got a dozen of these systems, you know, the question is, how many do you really need? And then the other thing is quite quite clearly tanks and armoured vehicles are coming in in a very large scale uh, from, from Germany, uh, Italy and other countries. And I think the British Centurion tanks have arrived in Ukraine as well. I mean, obviously where they are, locations and so on, all these things are very confidential, how they'll be used. Well, I, I'm not a military person here. You know, I don't understand the logistics of this. Only that all the indicators are is that it's getting ready for a very, very major uh, conflict and Ukraine is, I think, determined to, uh, to push the Russian forces out. I feel sorry for Ukrainian pilots, though, who have to fly, you know, ancient aircraft, which is already nice that they've been donated. I mean, they're just outmaneuvered, aren't they? And more importantly, I think the, the modern, modern Russian jets, you know, have, can engage people from much further away. So the first you can, you can find out is that you've just been shot down by someone you couldn't even see. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the problem. So uh, I suppose uh, the, 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 the MiG-31 jets and so on are uh, useful, but whether they are up to scratch in terms of what Russia may produce uh, is, is another matter. I suppose it also depends, though, the extent to which Ukraine does have the, uh, the air defence systems, the really modern air defence systems, because um, if Ukraine is going to go into a major tank battle, then having that air cover... Uh, I'm told is uh, absolutely essential and if you've got troops behind that you've got to have all the parts of the I suppose the military jigsaw and of course within all of this um, are of course the civilian population you know the soldiers who've you know I was watching the um, uh, one of the uh, BBC uh, documentaries where they uh, spent some time with Ukrainian soldiers being trained you know one was a welder one was a florist, I think another was a teacher, you know, people who had never picked up a gun before were being in five weeks training in order to prepare them for uh, what is going to be probably the biggest military conflict in Europe since the Second World War. Um, you know, I've spoken to my own sort of family there. Uh, obviously, people are very, very anxious because everybody have family members that are either in areas that are going to be under conflict or have family that are serving. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget at the end of the day, uh, this is about, uh, you know, the potential for enormous loss of life as well as enormous economic uh, disruption and damage. Do you think that President Putin is now developing some kind of withdrawal structure or plan? There are sort of rumours that, that he might be. So people are advising him to just say the, the mission is over, it's been a success, mm. and just get out. <laughs> it's, it's very clear that there is a lot of concern, it seems, on the Russian side now about the Ukrainian offensive, concern about the preparations for it, the scale of it, the equipment that Ukrainian forces uh, will have. And I think that's also catalyzed by the fact that Despite you know this, you know the Russian army meant to be being the second or third most powerful army in the world has made very very little progress. They've been hammering away at uh, Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine and other towns along that area, 
but made very, very little progress and done it at considerable loss of life. I mean, the estimate now is that Russian forces have lost in the region of something like 200,000 people. I don't know how accurate those are, but clearly it is an enormous number of people and they are throwing people uh, just over the trenches, etc. Uh, so it is really almost like a sort of First World War sort of battle at the moment. Uh, but of course, that may, that may change. And of course, what may happen within Russia? Well, of course, you know, when you control the newspapers, when you control the stories, uh, when you basically put out a single message and uh, all the blame is on everybody else, you know, uh, it's even been put out in Russian media that Ukraine started the war. Well, you know, we know that is a nonsense. Uh, no one here believes that. Uh, but of course, a lot of people in Russia do believe that because that's what they're told. That's all the information that they've had. People who speak out in Russia uh, uh, against the war or even criticize the president or the Russian armed forces or even suggest that the Russian armed forces are doing something wrong uh, are being taken to court and being fined uh, and potentially imprisoned as well. Yes. Oh, no, it's a severe situation. I mean, we've heard, obviously, from the correspondents who are still there filing, who have to be very careful about what they say, that, that that's the situation. And people, there's less objection on the street, uh, mm. demonstrations and so on, because this is clearly a hardline, you know, lockdown. And, of course, all the time, the media is telling the people untruths about the whole thing, like, Ukraine started it. Well, okay, that's the latest one. When the truth comes out, if the truth ever does come out there, because obviously their perception of it will always be different from ours, well, they'd just be astonished. I think shocked, completely shocked. But be, you know, but this is a country with a very long history of this sort of thing. Oh, listen, no, uh, uh, listen, absolutely. And I do wonder. You know, you look at the parallels, don't you? Like the last days of the German Nazi regime, you know. Um, where the state still controlled the media. And even though people could see the bombings, the destructions of cities, uh, they still believed there was going to be some sort of wonder weapon and uh, uh, this was all about um, Germany being attacked and so on. So you had that narrative that, that most people actually believed. And, of course, it begins to crack when the reality comes. And, of course, you know, afterwards, um, you know, the, uh, the, the claims of not knowing anything about the concentration camps and so on uh, became quite uh, preeminent and I really wonder if it's the same thing within Russia at the moment you know the the knowledge of the war crimes that are clearly being committed the deportation of people deportation of children you know the indictment now from the International Criminal Court the warrants that have been issued for arrest um, you know uh, but it shows how the control of information in our world, and there are lessons I think for all countries, democratic and non-democratic, um, shows how important the control of media or the, the access to free media uh, is so important. So when you see countries um, uh, that are restricting access to the internet, as China is doing, uh, the same in Russia to some extent, control of the press, um, you know, I think we should all really be quite worried about the, uh, the the importance of a of a free media a media where information can be put out freely well uh, here in a country where we believe that we have free media there are quite a lot of people you know theorists of conspiracy who who reckon it's not free media at all it's entirely controlled by 
the big interests and so on. I mean, I, there are a lot of people apparently believing this. I mean, in America, we know that's the, the, the case, the mantra of Trump and so on. But, but here, we're not used to that. But actually, lots of people, particularly young people, are questioning the neutrality of people like the BBC. Yeah, I mean, I actually still think the BBC is uh, is, is the pinnacle of uh, sort of ethical standards. You know, it's, uh, uh, of course, putting across uh, stories and information and so on is also challenging because if you try to do it in a balanced way um you know what are you reporting you if you're balancing it you're balancing it often with people who are trying to put out inf- misinformation so it is a very very difficult tightrope for journalism uh, and and for journalists and we see that in the newspapers as well i suppose the difference we have here to some extent is of course we have the the freedom to put out information so there aren't restrictions by and large on information that goes out but of course the question is to who actually controls the outlets uh, and we see i mean i have to say i see a certain number of papers that are owned by big financial interests where it is very clear to me that some of the information coming out is clearly distorted or is clearly being used to put a political uh, objective political uh, issue in the limelight irrespective of how accurate that information actually is well there's some of the headlines this week in, in the telegraph which are astonishing about the apparent renaming of the Brecon Beacons National Park which hasn't been renamed at all the name that is now being lauded the Welsh name has always been there but it it inferred that there was some kind of subversive left-wing plot going on this side of the border you just think you look at it and you go well how does that relate to what's actually happening here in Wales It, it doesn't at all there is certainly certainly the media has become i think more sort of anglo-centric more centralized than it has been uh, in the past uh, there's also been a certain sort of anti-welshness i think in that sort of anglo-centric me- media you know the the idea that you know these strange names they come up with in wales and what a funny lot they are over there and that sort of thing you know uh, and and in some ways it's a sort of a, it's an insult it's a sort of Brit- it's almost a bit of a brits abroad type thing isn't it you know the the name hasn't changed uh, you Using a local name. I mean, we don't we don't complain now that that Peking, as we knew it, capital of China, we now call Beijing because uh, in China they felt it was important that you actually use the uh, uh, Chinese name rather than the sort of colonial name that was used. But somehow that that sort of approach for some people doesn't seem to all becomes a source of amusement uh, when when you do something in part of the UK, you know. And I think it says a little bit about the perhaps the education system in England as well, that it doesn't teach enough about the fact that the UK actually consists of uh, four nations. Yes, and and the one they're talking about here has a language that goes back traceably to 4,000 years ago, which is a lot further, and you swore there, (laughs) than than the language that's quite commonly used in England. Well, listen, we're going to go back to, you know, restoring traditional rights and so on, you know, I mean, uh, uh, England would have to realise that its language is rather a modern concoction of of sort of Roman, French and Saxon, you know, whereas the Welsh language is uh, a far older, far uh, uh, clearer and far purer language in many ways. But, um, you know, in these times of diversity where we should actually be celebrating in diversity and the importance of different cultures and so on 
it, it really is irritating that you'll get some papers that make these really pathetic and really quite reactionary comments about something which is just about respecting local culture and identity. And there were some not entirely correct national newspaper observations this week, which led to, to Richie Sunak having a go in, in Parliament about asylum seekers and apparently the Welsh uh, giving them loads of money, uh, encouraging them to come here. Well, uh, of course, that all emerged really from a, from a letter myself and some other ministers wrote. I wrote it in my capacity as the Council General for Wales, seeking clarification from the Justice Minister on how uh, legal aid might be impacted by people in receipt of this pilot we've got, which is aimed at care leavers. So we have several hundred people who are in care. We know that they suffer major disadvantages when you come out of care. So for two years, we're experimenting with a minimum income pilot for them. It was in our manifesto it's been discussed in the senate uh, on numerous occasions there have been a lot of debates about this and it means those coming out for the first two years will get a monthly income of 1600 pounds uh, and the objective is it's to give them the security and the floor to either move into training into education um, that they don't you know they, they will not these people who will not have the sort of floor that many people at 18 you know when my kids turned 18 they weren't suddenly out of home and house whereas of course if you're a care leave when you're 18 well suddenly your whole family connection has has gone yeah you no longer have that and we know that high numbers get into homelessness on the streets into drugs end up in prison and so on so it's a pilot it also means that uh, a small number of them will be uh, children that have come over unaccompanied children have gone into the care system from from abroad migrant children uh, and uh, equally so they will be able to participate within it there aren't many but uh, they are entitled to um, of causing those issues to legal aid so what we were asking about is uh, we were asking the UK government because legal aid is not devolved how will that impact on the, if we give them the £1,600 how will it impact on their entitlement to legal aid because if these issues are coming up now what is really quite annoying from uh, my perspective it appears that letter was leaked uh, the Sun had a copy of that letter. They even had a copy of the UK government's reply before any of the Welsh government ministers had seen that reply. But not only that, the reporting was completely uh, inaccurate. It was suggesting that everyone who came over from abroad that came to Wales would get £1,600. You know, So it was a deliberate uh, uh, ploy, I think. I think it was a conspiracy. I think it was coordinated because it so happened to all coordinate with the Prime Minister's question in Parliament. So I'm really concerned about the, uh, the integrity of the sort of intergovernmental relations. But what it shows is the way in which the press can be abused and can abuse their position, putting out information that is clearly incorrect, clearly dishonest, uh, and it's just really, really bad journalism. And it gets the whole issue of uh, news into, I think, a, a bad mindset. It rubs salt into the already open wound of what's the difference between a migrant and an asylum seeker. It's all about, I think, a government at Westminster level that is in desperate mode in terms of forthcoming elections, uh, playing a race card. We've seen this in the past. Uh, and I think, for me, I think it is really appalling because it is seeking to create 
divisions. It's seeking to propagate a sort of racism, etc., in the grounds that hopefully that will agitate and create some sort of political support. It is really, for me, it is the worst form of politics. And I was really disappointed. I mean, I was just coming back from holiday and I was having to respond to things on it. You know, so I went out on social media and I just said, look, this is totally dishonest. It is not true what you're saying. Uh, I put it to those who were making those statements that what they're saying was untrue. Uh, I don't think they've contested that. I haven't seen that they've contested it. No doubt they, they, they will. But there's absolutely no doubt that the, that the more accurate journalism that has occurred since that's been analysing the, the situation uh, is basically saying it is inaccurate. You know, it was inaccurate when one uh, senior opposition politician uh, in Wales came forward and basically said this was the first he'd heard of it. Whereas in actual fact, you know, I was in the chamber when uh, the whole basic income pilot was being discussed. You know, so... Uh, uh, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, it will no doubt come up in the uh, Senate uh, questions and discussions over the course of this coming week. But, uh, you know, I just think it is just really, really uh, bad politics. I, I don't think it does credit for anyone. OK, well, you're back in uh, Senate, I think you said tomorrow uh, for the next sitting, which will be, the, I suppose, the summer term, will it? Uh, it, it is now. It takes us all the way through to uh, July. And do you have a sort of legislative programme that has to be seen through in that limited time? Or? We, we, we do have. I mean, I'm very involved in issues around electoral reform. What we're trying to do is to modernise the electoral system that we have for local government, but obviously it will impact on uh, Senate elections as well we can only make changes in respect of our own legislate in respect of our own uh, non uh, our own devolved elections that's for the senate and for, for for local councils really looking at issues as to how we make uh, elections more accessible and i think expressing the concern you have when increasing numbers of people don't participate in elections because that's really bad for democracy you know i think it is a civic responsibility on everyone to actually participate in elections and to participate in making the choice of those people who speak on our behalf and i think you know it gets very very damaging if fewer and few people actually do participate so what we want to do is to modernise those elections. We want to make sure that everybody is on the electoral register. So obviously we're going to be looking at things like automatic registration. Now that that doesn't mean uh, people will be forced to vote, but it means they are on the register and they have the opportunity to vote. Uh, we've not gone down the road that UK government has gone with uh, its own council elections in England at the moment and future parliamentary elections with ID cards. One, because we don't think it's necessary. There's no evidence that voter fraud is an issue. But secondly, it just creates another bureaucratic obstacle for a lot of people to participate within the voting system. So we have that particular legislation going through. We're, of course, looking at issues in terms of tourism and so on, agriculture, where there's a need for legislation. And, of course, what we do have also is... UK government have uh, have got going through Parliament at the moment legislation which would basically abolish every bit of European-based legislation that is on the statute books uh, or that uh, that we are required to implement uh, by the end of the year, uh, and it is a mammoth task. Some would say it is uh, an almost impossible, impossible and ill-thought-out task because you're talking about over six thousand pieces of legislation. Um, so obviously that's going through. That has an impact on 
a lot of work because these are legislations that, that, that may relate to things like food standards, environmental standards, uh, to chemicals, to safety issues, a whole series of regulations that most people probably aren't aware of, but impact on the protections that we have in what we eat, where we live, how we, how we travel, uh, our, some of our rights and entitlements and so on. So that is something that is also going to have... Um, uh, a big uh, impact I think on what we may or may not be able to do. There are some signs that the UK government is beginning to realise how um, flawed this proposal is. Uh, I would hope that they would withdraw it or substantially change it but we're waiting at the moment for a big report from the um, uh, House of Lords uh, and see what their suggestions are and that may impact on what happens. Um, waiting for royal assent I think on the single-use plastics bill, which will become a single-use plastics act, which is about basically banning plastic items, you know, the sorts of the straws, the lids on cups, so they have to be replaced with things that are uh, reusable, recyclable. It's been through the Senate, and of course the final stage is... Uh, ultimately going to the uh, going to the king to confirm uh, assent. So we're waiting for that to come through now as well. And of course we have things like a Clean Air Act going through, which is about really controlling uh, pollution uh, in our environment. So uh, uh, yes, a lot of important stuff happening. Yes, well that that's triggered in my mind an association with Cardiff Council. Mm. Um, I mean we're we're moving towards electric vehicles low emission vehicles less diesels around even in the process up to electric switchover and so on and we've got a council now who are looking at taking up to five years to put in uh, legislation of some kind no one they don't know what it's going to be yet they haven't actually decided finally to do it but the vibe is that actually they have they just haven't worked out which mechanism is is the sort of message that perhaps we see between the lines on this one and five years would take us to what 2027 there won't be any petrol cars sold after 2030 so inevitably between now and then there will be reduction in emissions just because of the changeover of mm. cars so isn't going to enormous expense and causing potentially quite a lot of social unease which we've seen in england we've seen some horrendous scenes in civilized places that mm. we thought were civilized like oxford you watched last week's panorama they're punching each other in the street and burning bollards and doing all sorts of things if it takes five years to put that in and pollution is already on the way out through the front door by the time it comes in, what's the point? Well, I, I think there's a number of factors to this, isn't there? I mean, one, you still talk about 20 to 30 years of substantial numbers of vehicles uh, that will be uh, emitting uh, 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 pollution uh, in our communities. There's also the other aspect of congestion within our communities as well, which is a, a major issue as well. Um, of course, what Cardiff Council will want to do will obviously be something that they have to engage with uh, Welsh Government on as well, uh, I think. And it also ties in with 
discussions and things that are going on with regard to the metro, with regard to public transport as well, uh, because all these things sort of interact with, with one another. And of course, you know, in, in Rotherham and Taff, we know because of the uh, pollution on the A470 in certain areas that the speed has been uh, forcibly reduced in order to uh, reduce that. And I understand that that's effectively what is sort of happening as a consequence of that. Um, what is important for me is that, firstly, that we promote uh, public transport, that we've got to give people an alternative from cars, whether they're electric cars or whether they're non-electric cars, because the congestion from uh, vehicles, both in our streets, the dependency that we have on those vehicles is enormous. And, of course, even electric vehicles create different types of pollution because of the batteries, the disposal of the batteries, the lithium, the chemicals that are involved in it. So we want less vehicles on our streets. Our streets can't cope with the number of vehicles, electric or otherwise, uh, but it has to go hand in hand, obviously, with the growth of public transport and alternatives in transport. And as you know, that's why I keep pushing the reopening of this railway line through to Llantrisant uh, and, 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 and so on. Um, what is important also, though, is that uh, things, something like a congestion charge doesn't become a tax on people from the valleys who have to travel into Cardiff to work. You know, it's got to be something that is fair for everyone. Um, so it can't be just something that because people in the valleys where, you know, heavy industry has gone but who now have jobs in Cardiff are the people who are paying the charge. It should be something that is as equally applicable to the people who live in Cardiff as well. It should be applicable to everyone in terms of vehicles and so on and fairness. There's got to be real engagement with the communities and with people on it. People have to understand what is being proposed, why it's being proposed, how it might be implemented, etc. There will be those who will be uh, on one end who will be completely in favour of the absolute puritanical uh, abolition of vehicles, etc. On the other end, there will be those who believe that uh, you know um, driving your car, whatever car that is, in any time, anywhere, any place, at no cost, is a bit like the American sort of right to hold arm type thing you know um, I think there's a, a more balanced position which is in the middle and that is we want less vehicles on our streets our streets can't cope with the number of vehicles electric or otherwise uh, and that they're going to be for quite a number of years serious issues with pollution that are still there uh, that are causing illness uh, and that we can't go on as we, we are it's a question of how do we do it in a way that's rational that's fair uh, and that also that people can understand and buy into as well and that has to involve improvements to the public transport system and that's that's why you know we're so angry over the fact that with the hs2 investment uh, in england uh, with the northern powerhouse investment in railways there uh, we've been carved out from getting any of the consequential funding you know which would be six billion pounds for wales and just think what we could do with six billion pounds invested in uh, improving our public transport system you know perhaps solving some of these problems and uh, i'm afraid uh, you know many ways wales is being uh, uh, I, well uh, you know i, I went 
went public on this, didn't I? And it uh, hit the media quite a lot that I said the UK government are abusing the Barnett formula, the formula whereby additional investment in England that we get a, a population consequentially 5%, uh, and then suddenly saying that HS2 is a benefit to Wales is a nonsense. The Northern Powerhouse Rail is, an, is a nonsense. It's, it's an abuse of the funding arrangement between Wales and uh, the UK, and it's something that really needs to be resolved because it is grossly unfair and damaging. Well, the HS2 argument is bizarre because the train doesn't even come here. I mean, if the train connected with here in a way like the east-west you know, route to Paddington or something, if that was suddenly going to be 200-mile-an-hour train, you know, which was HS2 and it would start at Bristol, mm. then you could argue that there would be a benefit to people in Wales mm. because they'd be in, you know, in London before they even set off. You know? um, but with the thing going north-south in England... It just doesn't seem to be a logical argument at all. Well, even the Welsh Conservatives uh, now agree that Wales should get this additional funding uh, under the formula. Uh, but it's quite clear that in Westminster, no one is actually listening to them on it. Um, the argument that they put is that, well, in Scotland, the rail system is fully devolved. In Wales, it's only parts of it, the valley lines and so on, that's devolved and parts of transport that are devolved. Therefore, part of our rail network is still part of an England and Wales network. Therefore, whatever they invest in England, even if they completely bypass Wales and don't invest in Wales, they say it's part of an England and Wales system. Therefore, um, we benefit from it because we're part of it. I, I think that's a, that's a real distortion of how the funding formula is meant to work. I think it is a real abuse. And I think it is just an excuse not to pay money that should come to Wales, money that is, in fact, going to Scotland. Uh, and Wales is being deliberately carved out of it. And I think... You know, it's one of the things that really has to change because it creates so much bad feeling and it is also an insult to Wales as well. There's not much encouraging noise coming out of uh, your counterparts in uh, English Labour or British Labour about this, is there? I, probably they've all done all their sums, haven't they? This is the point. <laughs> they've probably done all their sums on it for, for the, when the election comes. And if they suddenly disagree with the Conservatives, suddenly they've got to find you know, billions of pounds to give to Wales, which isn't in the calculations yet. Well, I, th I think the challenge, isn't it, is for opposition parties in modern politics, and we've talked about the press and social media and so on, who the moment you say something can either get taken out of context or becomes the uh, a sort of diversion from... Uh, the, the sort of politics that the, you know an opposition may want to promote, which at the moment is say around the cost of living and so on. I suppose all I can say is is that um, I would hope that with the change of government in Westminster, there will be a far more constructive uh, approach. I mean, it is very uh, you know encouraging that Welsh uh, Labour MPs in Westminster have actually also been challenging the HS2 decision, you know, that they are clearly on board and recognise that this funding has to uh, come to Wales because it is part of the funding formula uh, that should bind the UK together. And the more these formulas uh, that are about 
sharing wealth, sharing um, functions across the four nations of the UK, the more they are broken up, uh, the more damaging it becomes. And, uh, you know, even though Scotland, there are problems there with the SNP, the independence issue hasn't gone away. Uh, the calls for change and reform haven't gone away uh, in Wales or even in England itself. So there are a lot of challenges ahead. But, um, you know, this sort of system where, you know, it is a blatant abuse of the financial arrangements uh, is really just insulting to Wales uh, and really holds us back from doing a lot of the things that we really could do for the benefit of our communities. On the other hand, and putting a you know a positive view, I suppose, on the relationship with the UK government, we have been seeing around here quite a lot of positive benefits of, of cash coming in from um, you know the leveling, the famous leveling up fund of which you have said much in the past. But it is nevertheless UK cash that's coming into RCT. The council have been particularly adept, actually, I think, in in getting hold of some of this cash because it's you know it's building part of the four double one nine doodle carriageway, which is still going ahead. You know, it hasn't been suspended. Or, or kicked into the long grass um also there's the transport hub in porth there's the muni you know there are lots of useful things actually going on here uh, with with some uk government input and i spoke i went down to the new transport hub in porth to to meet the secretary of state for wales who i haven't actually met in person before uh, and the transport minister who'd come to look at the projects and actually they were incredibly um uh incredibly supportive of the quality of the product you know the, the relationship with the local authority and so on it was a very good news visit what had occurred to me driving away was that the railway line at the other side of the terminus building where they're building the bus stop will actually be closed <laughs> for six months mm. when the thing opens so the the bus station part will be open this is not anyone's fault you know it's just uh, because transport yeah. for wales have decided to close the line and sort of pull it up and re rebuild it i think rebuild most of the stations along it yeah. uh, uh, you know in the process so it's not entirely an you know a smooth transition but w what was if you like impressive from a neutral point of view, putting my reporter hat on was there was no backslanging going on. There was positive uh, feedback going on. There was cash coming into RCT mm. to do things that we either couldn't do before or would have had to wait to get cash from somewhere else, mm. probably for longer. Mm. And, and the, the relationship was the most positive I've ever seen it in moments like that. Well, yeah. I mean, listen. I, I'm 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 in favour. Any bits of money that can come in uh, should come in. I mean, all I say is the amount of money that's come in uh, is far less than the money that we were promised and that we were getting previously. So, you know, we actually have far less projects like that that are being funded uh, than is the case now. So, in many ways, it's a it's a sort of misrepresentation for for to, to say that somehow this is almost presented as though it's sort of additional cash where in actual fact it's less than what we would have had under the previous arrangements uh the other thing is of course is that uh it's not it's you know funding has to be part of uh, a strategic plan as to where you want the funding to go what you want it to achieve and how it is going to operate in the long term so you know 
RCT Council has been very effective in terms of ensuring that uh, wherever it can get additional cash from, it will do so. Uh, and I fully support that. Um, but it was very pleasing that certainly at the Welsh Labour Conference that Keir Starmer made it absolutely clear that all those funds that were promised that are now being sort of uh, directed from London have to have to come back to, to Wales to be dealt with in a way that is accountable to the people of Wales, that is through the uh, uh, Welsh Parliament and through the Welsh Government, etc. That's where the accountability, but that's also where the long-term planning of the use of that money goes. So it's not something that's directed to where there may be a particular political interest in uh, having a bit of money at, at a particular time. It's also about the longevity of projects, and obviously the rail projects and transport for Wales are really important because most of that is Welsh Parliament um, uh, money, but is also about the long-term part of a public transport system, and that brings us back again to HS2 and to the funding. You know, because we've been, we've had a railway system in Wales. I think we have something like, isn't it, fourteen percent of the entire UK railway network, and over the years we've only had two percent of the funding. So there was an enormous backlog, and that's why things like that, that consequential funding from HS2 and from Northern Powerhouse, is so important. That's six billion pounds would make up uh, a big deficit in the investment in our infrastructure uh, that is really important to us. Well, and Cardiff Council, who I mentioned earlier, are actually apparently proposing a tram system mm. um, for the centre of Cardiff as well, which would be an interesting step back into the future past sort of thing. Um, and also highly subsidised uh, bus fares on main routes, like a pound mm. a journey and things like that. But these will be greatly welcomed by people, as will the electric buses, which takes probably quite a lot of the pollution, actually, if the, all the buses turned electric or yeah. or whatever they call it, hydrogen or something that's not polluting. The fact that those large vehicles are not spewing out, you know, diesel fumes all, all around the city will, will in itself make a huge uh, you know, contribution to the carbon issue. So there are lots of things that uh, local authorities and others can do here with six billion quid for, you know, earmarked for transport. Yeah, well, forward to the past. I mean, you remember as well as I do, isn't it, the trolleybus systems. I remember, you know, not so long ago looking at roadworks that were going on in Cardiff and the tram rails were still underneath the uh, uh, the streets, you know, and you wonder how we moved. There's suddenly this obsession we had, of course, with cheap oil, wasn't it? Uh, that suddenly that became the mechanism. We got rid of all the uh, the trolleybus systems. Uh, I'm just really fascinated when I, when I was coming back to Ukraine, coming back to Ukraine, seeing the electric systems that are there, the tram system, um, as we're driving through Europe, because we drove through to Antwerp, through to Dresden, through to Krakow, seeing these uh, tram systems right through the middle of towns. You know, the whole town being built around a transport system that enables people to get from A to B, you know, and you think, well, how stupid these Europeans, you know, planning their infrastructure system so that people actually have access to public transport, you know. Yeah, yeah let's have a bit of that, please. And uh, so those things, those things that are beginning to take, take place in some of our cities, I think, are really, uh, really encouraging. Uh, and, uh, you know, in many ways, public transport should be the central part of uh, many of our towns because getting in and out... 
you know, you know, we all know what it's like. You know, if I want to go into Cardiff, where am I going to park? Where am I going to put the car? Will it be full? Will it not? How far away is it, etc.? You know, if only I could actually get a, a train or a tram or a trolley bus or whatever it is straight into the the, the city centre, one that goes all the way through. I can hop on, hop off. You know, that really makes sense, and I think that is what is beginning to feature in the, the longer term planning. But you know, none of these things happen quickly. It costs an enormous amount of money. Um, but I, you know, I think we're beginning to get there. The next combustion point in this uh, transport debate is, is likely to be the subsidy of buses. Mm. Um, this is, we can see this one coming. Um, the minister, well, the deputy minister has seen it coming as well uh, and has said, well, look, there just isn't the cash to do this. But on the other hand, it's clear that he has listened to the representations he's mm-hmm. had from people like RCT. A lot, most of the council leaders, I think, have, yes. been, have been lobbying about this, saying, well, look, these routes have not returned to their pre-COVID levels of, of usage. I mean, RCT have actually spent some yeah. levelling up money that yeah. they had to spend by the end of March. They had a few hundred thousand pounds they had to spend, you'd be, otherwise lose it. And and who wouldn't want to do that? So they had free buses here for a month mm. to try and get people back yeah. on the buses. But there's no doubt that the private companies can't afford to run the buses yeah. without help. Uh, and also, on the other hand, the Welsh government doesn't have a bottomless pit of cash to do it. Yet even the, the deputy minister, Mr. Waters himself, has acknowledged that actually there is no substitute in rural areas yeah. for the car as the main form of transport yeah. and needs to be supplemented as much as possible with, with buses. Buses and taxis. I mean, no, you you're, listen, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, just to sort of, for, for accuracy, I mean, of course, what's being talked about is not a, a cut in funding. This is the additional money that was made available to Welsh Government and across the UK uh, because of COVID. That is to keep bus services running yeah. during the COVID period. And of course, it's that funding that has come to an end. And uh, there's been, I think, a, sl- a slight alleviation extension of it to allow it to carry on a bit longer. But once that is gone, you're back to buses being dependent on the previous subsidy. Uh, and on the fares that come in. There's no doubt that public money has been subsidising the bus system for a long, long time. And I think what we really have to look at is a rationalisation of that, and that is a re-regulation of buses. The deregulation of buses that took place in the 80s was an absolute disaster, I think. Um, and I think we have to get back into seeing buses um, not competing with one another for routes or for services, etc., uh, but basically providing a service where they need to go, when they need to go. And I think that also provides an opportunity in the longer term if numbers can pick up for having much cheaper fares because at the moment um, most of the cost of the transport system is being paid for out of public money anyway so it's a cash cow for bus companies uh, and I think it's time we actually looked at either bringing those bus companies back into some form of regulated or public ownership as part of a public transport system integrated with train and I think there's also a role for taxis within that system as well so we need to look at that and i think it's an area where we will also need to introduce legislation to achieve it but again these are big big changes and um are not things that can happen overnight um sadly but uh, I, I think moving in the right direction over the next couple of years is really important but do we have the legislative power 
to to actually put this sort of thing through or is some of it still under UK control? No, we have the legislative power now. We've only had those powers relatively recently now in terms of being able to regulate the buses themselves and the transport system. We don't have parts of the transport system like uh, network rail and so on that we should have that would enable us to do uh, things more easily without having to go backwards and forwards for consents and so on. The big challenge uh, is the availability of funding to you know to to do the investment that is ne- is needed. The investment uh, in in the buses, the conversion into electric buses, uh, the need to coordinate you know ticketing systems. You know it should be possible whichever mode of transport you use or public transport you use to travel from A to B, whether that's by bus, rail, and so on with one ticket. We should be moving towards a cashless system increasingly, so that people can use their cards. Um, so all those sorts of systems, many of which we actually see in operation in parts of Europe already, um, are really what we need to bring into bring into play. So we do have uh, many powers that enable us to do that, and uh, I know there's consideration to legislating in this area at the moment. Uh, cash is obviously a, a big question, though. We've uh, put the world to rights. <laughs> um, We'll resume the conversation, uh, you know, in a month's time and see where we've got to then. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in a month's time. We'll be a month further down the, the road with the, the Welsh Government's legislative programme and events in the Welsh Parliament. So uh, look forward to joining you in a month.